CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London in June of 2021. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths, learn from leading criminologists, hear from the families and survivors, meet your favorite true crime podcasters, immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend, partnered by Crime and Investigation. And I'm delighted to announce that I will be there all weekend, so come and join me. Quote mens rea when you're buying your ticket for a 10% discount. And as a special bonus, the first 10 people who contact me to let me know that they've bought a ticket using my special code will get a free mens rea t-shirt. Limited tickets are on sale now, and it's a COVID-proof purchase, so there's no need to worry. For more information, visit crimecon.co.uk and use my special code, MENSREA. You're listening to the MENSREA podcast, and this is the story of James Healy. On Tuesday the 25th of February 1997, the body of 16-year-old James Healy was discovered in a field near to a FOSS workshop and a factory at the Monavalley Industrial Estate just outside of Tralee in County Kerry. The horrific discovery was made at around half past ten that morning. James had lived in the nearby Shanaquil Estate with his parents Kathleen and James and his three siblings, Donal, who was 17, Alan, 11, and his sister Sarah, who was eight. He was the second oldest in the family. Later, James was described by locals in the press as exceptionally quiet, and he had been a trainee at that nearby community training workshop, run by FOSS, a government-run education and employment scheme. Two passers-by, brothers, who had come to the patch of waste ground to tend to ponies that were kept there, were the first to notice James lying face up in the field. He was wearing jeans and a black padded jacket, and a four-foot length of electrical conduit was found there too. Early reports by the Irish Times theorised that this long, rigid tubing could have been used in the attack, which had left the teenager with severe wounds to his head and face. James had come to the attention of the Gardaí a number of times in the past. Despite his youth, he already had two criminal convictions to his name. Both had occurred since James Healy had turned 16 and both involved charges where he was described as having been a lookout during the course of burglaries. In fact, in this area of Tralee, there were a number of youths and young men who were known to the Gardaí and were involved in or were suspected of involvement in various levels of criminality in the area. Because of this known criminal activity and antisocial behaviour, it was suspected that the death might be linked to these groups of young people. As news of the discovery of the body spread, which was, at that point, still officially unidentified, rumours also spread that this death might have been linked to a street fight between rival gangs of youths that had occurred recently in the town. Members of the Garda Technical Bureau and the chief state pathologist, Dr John Harbison, began making their way to Kerry that night, as a plastic forensics tent was erected around James's body to preserve the scene through the chilly, rainy night. Gardaí appealed for information on local Kerry radio stations and began an intensive door-to-door inquiry in the nearby estate to try and gather information and evidence in the case. Once news broke widely in the community, Kathleen Healy made her way down to the Gallowsfield Road. She hadn't seen her second eldest child, James, in a number of days, and while that wasn't unusual, she was worried. Gardy would not confirm to her or anyone the identity of the body laying in the field, but Mrs Healy's appearance at the site and her explanation of the situation to police made it clear that, unofficially at that point, it was in fact James Healy who had been brutally beaten to death some time over the weekend. 
James Healy had been missing for 84 hours, and Gardy began to try and piece together his last known movements, as well as the movements of others in the town who might have been in the area around the time of his death. Within a short period of time, they had determined that he was last seen alive around 10pm on the Friday before. The investigation was made more difficult by the fact that James had a history of not returning home every night, but his mother had told Gardy that James would never stay away from home for more than one or two days. Dr John Harbison arrived in Tralee late on Tuesday night and made an initial examination of the scene and James Healy's body while it was in situ. After that, Gardy continued to stand watch at the scene overnight in the rain. The following day, James's body was removed at 11am and brought to Tralee General Hospital, where a post-mortem examination was carried out by the chief state pathologist. After that, the family were finally able to view the body and formally identify it as being James. The preliminary post-mortem results stated that James had died as a result of injuries to his head. In the days following the discovery of James's body, the attention of the national press turned to the small community on the outskirts of Tralee. The near to 24-hour delay in removing James Healy's body from the scene was criticised in the press, with newspapers noting that the pathologist's office had complained of being understaffed. Their more local pathologist, Dr Margaret Bolster, had retired the year before. In the immediate aftermath of James's death, the Healy family decided to stay with friends. James's funeral took place on Saturday the 1st of March in St Brendan's Church, Tralee, before a large congregation gathered to pay respects and extend their sympathies to the Healy family. A guard of honour was provided by his classmates at the training college. Early the following week, senior Garda sources dismissed rumours that James's murder had had something to do with the illegal drugs trade in the area. They did reveal, however, that they were looking into the possibility that a row had occurred between rival teenagers in Tralee. They also said that they were satisfied with the public's response to the investigation and appealed again for anyone who had arrangements the night of James's death to come forward along with anyone who had been in the area that he was discovered in the days before his death. Gardy told reporters that they had already identified a possible prime suspect in the case, someone they said who had been in and out of jail and was well known by law enforcement and the court system in Tralee. A Garda source told Liz Allen, writing for the Sunday Independent, that there had been a fear locally by some members of the Gardy that this suspect would someday kill someone. CCTV footage from around the area was gathered up by police. Anything that was available from the period around James's last known sighting and his death. The tapes were to be gone through on a frame-by-frame basis to trace James's movements. Students at the Foss Training Centre, which James had been attending and which was near to the field where he had died, were also questioned by Gardy in order to gather as much information as was relevant to the investigation as was possible. Inspector Barry O'Rourke, the head of the investigating team, spoke directly to the media and called on any courting couples who were in the area of the industrial estate on the Friday night to come forward, and assured that they would be treated with the utmost confidentiality. They needn't worry about trying to explain what they were up to themselves in the area that night, he said. Then, over the weekend of the 22nd and 23rd of March, a development in the case occurred. 25-year-old Michael O'Brien of Gallows Field, an area adjacent to the industrial estate, was charged with James Healy's murder before a special sitting of the district court at Kenmare. He was then remanded in custody. Michael O'Brien was denied bail at the High Court by Mr Justice McGuinness on the 22nd of April 1997, but O'Brien was before the High Court bails again on the 31st of March 1998. He had been in custody for a year at that point and his trial date was set for November, still eight months away. O'Brien's counsel argued that the issue of bail needed to be reassessed, as if it was not, Mr O'Brien would have been in custody for a total of 20 months before being able to answer the charges against him. 
Mr. Brendan Mulhall, acting for the DPP, told the court that Mr. O'Brien had been returned for trial on the 3rd of March that year. His trial date had been set quickly, and if he had been on bail, this would not have been the case. Things were moving apace, and there was nothing at all untoward about the timeline, excepting perhaps that things were moving a little quicker than would normally be expected. Superintendent John O'Connor told the court that he believed O'Brien would interfere with witnesses and had threatened to kill one of the witnesses in particular. The superintendent said he believed O'Brien would carry through on those threats if he was released. He told the court further that Michael O'Brien had a dominance over the community and held them in fear. O'Brien's previous convictions, 20 in total, were also outlined for the High Court appeal. They included burglary, assault causing actual bodily harm, assaults on guardie and prison officers, and carrying an offensive weapon. The court heard that this weapon was of his own design, a pole with lead in it and rivets projecting out of the top. Detective Sergeant John Brennan also said that he was concerned about the safety of witnesses should O'Brien be released. Michael O'Brien spoke on the stand during the hearing and denied he had caused people any fear. He also told the judge, Mr Justice Budd, that an aunt of his was prepared to stand £25,000 for him as a surety and his father had an additional £5,000 that could be pledged to secure his release back to the community. But Mr Justice Budd said he was very concerned about the idea that Mr O'Brien might attempt to intimidate or interfere with witnesses in the case and noted the evidence before the court given by the Garda officers that some of these witnesses were in quote-unquote grave fear of the defendant in the proceedings. Mr O'Brien had denied that he would make any attempt to interfere or intimidate witnesses in the case, however, and said that although he had a past criminal record, he had since changed. He also denied having made threats to witnesses but Mr Justice Budd said he had to accept the evidence before him, though he said he was, in general, in favour of bail while there was the possibility of lengthy periods behind bars before the trial was due to start. In this case, however, bail was refused. Michael O'Brien's trial for the murder of James Healy began on the 9th of November 1998 before Mr Justice Dermot Kinlan and a jury of eight women and four men. Mr John Edwards acted as senior counsel on behalf of the DPP. Opening for the state, Mr Edwards told the jury that O'Brien and James had known each other and had drank cider together at various places at various times. James had been missing for three days when he was found on the waste ground near the factory. He had suffered a brutal beating. The injuries to James's face were so severe that 13 of his teeth had become dislodged. He had choked to death on a number of them which had become lodged in his throat in the course of the attack. It was the state's case that Michael O'Brien had been the perpetrator of this attack and had brutally beaten James Healy to death, murdering him. On the first day of testimony, Mr. James McCarthy took to the stand to describe how it was that he and his brother had come across James's body on the 25th of February 1997. He had been going out to the area to check on horses he kept in the fields there. Initially, Mr. McCarthy thought that the body he could see lying there was a drunk person, but when he got closer, he said it was obvious that the young man was dead. Mr. McCarthy told the court he'd then run to a nearby factory and summoned the guards. The call was placed at 10.32. After Mr McCarthy went for help, a worker at the nearby factory, Jerry Maloney, had gone out to see what the matter was and if he could help. But he told the court that he'd immediately seen it was too late. James's injuries were readily visible. He had a large gash on his face, which looked swollen. An ambulance driver, James Pembroke, arrived on the scene shortly after at 20 to 11 on foot of the 999 call and checked for signs of life. He found none. In court the following day, Chief State Pathologist Professor John Harbison gave his evidence regarding the post-mortem examination on James's body. Dr. Harbison told the jury that James had been hit so hard across the face that 13 of his teeth had become dislodged. 
He then inhaled some of them, along with some blood and a piece of bone, and James had suffocated on these. There were also severe injuries to the top of James's head. A large flap of his scalp had detached and come away as a consequence of one of the blows inflicted on him, and there was visible damage to the brain from jagged bone ends. Dr. Harbison had further identified severe bruising of the brain and told the court that as soon as he had begun his examination on scene, he'd been able to actually feel the fractures to James's cheek and on his head easily. A part of James's jawbone had come away during the attack, and Dr. Harbison found this next to his body. Each wound, its size and placement, was described for the jury, as well as the common physical signs of suffocation, which had been noted as present during James Healy's post-mortem examination. James Healy's death was determined to have been caused by his head injuries, suffocation, loss of blood and shock. Blood work indicated that James Healy had twice the legal drink-driving limit of alcohol in his system at the time of his death, but Dr. Harbison said that this wouldn't have been enough to cause unconsciousness. No drugs were detected in James Healy's system. While on the stand, Dr. Harbison was also shown the blood-stained pipe found near to James's body and was asked if this could have been the weapon that was used in the attack. Harbison said that the injuries suffered by Mr. Healy were made by a unique object, and it was his opinion that this was in fact the weapon used. On Wednesday the 11th of November, Kathleen Healy, James's mother, took to the stand and described how James had gone out on Friday the 22nd and had not come home. She had been a little worried, but then she heard on a local news bulletin that a body had been found near to her estate. She immediately left her house and headed to the location where she informed Gardie on scene that she was concerned, as her son had been missing. Mrs. Healy told the court that the Gardie did not tell her the identity of the body at that point. Then, a friend of the deceased took to the stand. 18-year-old Timothy Ward said that he and James Healy were part of a group of young people who were in the habit of gathering on Friday nights, either at a spot known locally as the Dyke or near some basketball courts where they would drink and effectively party. He and James had met that Friday at one of those gatherings. James was to have met the witness again the following day to go to a boxing tournament, but James had not turned up. Timothy Ward said the last time he had seen James, he was wearing a black puffy jacket, jeans and runners similar to what had been found on his body days later as he lay in the field. The next day, the court heard from another young man from the area, Darren O'Shea. He was friends with the accused and said on the evening of St. Patrick's Day 1997, a group had been out drinking near a local sports centre. The topic of James's death had come up and O'Shea had asked Michael O'Brien who he thought had killed the younger boy. According to Darren O'Shea, the defendant had said, quote, Between me and you, deputy, I killed James. End quote. Mr. O'Brien went on to say that he, the deceased, and a number of other youths had been drinking in a boat shed and the two had gotten into an argument. James began heading home, but O'Brien told the witness that he'd followed James and then hit him with something he had in his pocket. The defendant had then described having forced James to a field using a bar that O'Brien said he'd held to James's chest and then had beaten him repeatedly with, leaving the bar behind when he left and went home. Defence counsel Mr. Blaze O'Carroll, senior counsel, cross-examined Darren O'Shea, asking why it was that he was apparently quote-unquote betraying the accused. O'Shea responded that initially he had been shocked by what O'Brien had said to him and he wasn't sure if it was even true. He had decided to tell the authorities what O'Brien had told him because, in his words, quote, my best friend was after getting killed, end quote. Blaise O'Carroll put it to Mr. O'Shea that he might have come forward with this, as the barrister called it, astonishing information because the witness had been in trouble with the guardie in the past and wanted to ingratiate himself with the police. But O'Shea insisted that he'd only come forward and told guardie what he'd been told by the defendant. Next on the stand was Bernadette O'Brien, an aunt of the accused, 
who described how O'Brien had needed to wash some clothing the weekend that James had died. According to her, Michael had told her that the items were, quote, in a state, end quote. Bernadette also told the court that O'Brien had told her that James had fallen off a roof and bashed his head, and that was how he had died. Then, Sabrina O'Brien, a cousin, recalled that she had asked Michael O'Brien if there had been any word of James when he was still thought to be missing the weekend of his death. Her cousin had responded, quote, He's probably in a field across from Foss with a bar across him and his face bashed in, end quote. On Monday the 17th of November, the fifth day of the trial, Michael O'Brien's sister, Linda, took to the stand. She recalled that when James was still missing, James's father, Mr. Healy, had called to their house, asking if Michael might know where James was. Mr. Healy had been told no, but after he left, O'Brien had said something to effect that James is off in the field with a bar over him. Linda confirmed for her brother's defence counsel, Mr. Blaise O'Carroll, that at the time, she had taken this statement as a sarcastic, joking remark. After the discovery of James Healy's body, Linda recalled for the court that her dad had read aloud from a Sunday newspaper relating the fact that James had been found out in the field. Linda testified that their father had made the remark that the guardie would think Michael had something to do with it, but Michael had just said over and over that he didn't do it and that he'd had nothing to do with it. The next witness was another young man from the area. James O'Dowd took the stand and said he'd last seen James Healy the evening he disappeared, near to midnight. He'd seen James with the defendant, Michael O'Brien, near to where his body would later be found. The two men had walked off then. Mr O'Dowd was insistent that the two people he had seen and heard were James Healy and Michael O'Brien and said he was familiar with what they looked and sounded like. The witness confirmed that he had made a number of statements to the guardie which put James with other people the night that he died, but he now said that his final statement was the only truly accurate one. When Mr Blaise O'Carroll accused James O'Dowd of telling a pack of lies on the stand because he hadn't said that the victim and the defendant were together when he initially spoke to the guardie, O'Dowd said he was now telling the truth and explained that he had lied to police at first as he didn't want to get involved. Mr O'Dowd went on to say in cross-examination that he'd lied to Gardy because he was afraid of the accused. Quote, I know the reputation of Mr O'Brien, I've seen the damage he's done to other people, and I didn't want to be involved. End quote. Then John O'Brien, the defendant's father, was called to give evidence. He said that he'd heard his son suggest that it might be the case that James had fallen from a roof and was lying in a field somewhere with head injuries. But Mr. O'Brien went on to say that his son often said things that couldn't be relied upon. Michael was always speculating, especially when it came to crimes committed in the town, and who he thought might have done them. They weren't statements you could trust or hold to be true. He said, quote, you didn't take much notice, end quote. Bridget O'Brien, the defendant's mother, also took the stand in the trial and said that a statement about where James might be found from her own statement to the guardie was not accurate, despite confirming that guardie had read the statement back to her after it was made. Bridget O'Brien denied ever hearing the phrase, quote, if they're looking for James, he'd be over in the field with his head bashed in, end quote. Mrs. O'Brien said, she had never made such a comment and never heard her son say such a thing. On cross, Mrs. O'Brien said her son had specifically denied having killed James. She also said that he was a bit slow and unlike her other children. She said he had psychiatric problems. Mr. Edwards' prosecuting said in response, quote, I know Michael is your son and I know any mother would stand up for their son, but you know full well that what's in your statement is the truth. End quote. Mr. Justice Kinlan then advised the jury that the statement itself was not evidence and the only evidence for them to consider was what Mrs. O'Brien had had to say or was going to say in the witness box. Then another associate of the defendants was called to give evidence. Liam Brosnan told the court on Friday the 20th of November that he'd been with the defendant for a number of hours on February 21st from late evening to the early hours of the following morning effectively alibying O'Brien. 
Blaise O'Carroll asked the witness pointedly if Gardy had told him that his statement was, quote, getting in the way of their theory that the defendant had committed the crime, but Brosnan denied that the police had said that to him. After this, the jury were informed that they would not be required until later the following week due to legal arguments that were to be heard. They were to return on Thursday unless contacted by the court and told otherwise. This adjournment continued for a second week, however. So, on Wednesday the 9th of December, after a delay of 10 days in the proceedings, Garda Martin Nolan took the stand. He described how Mr. O'Brien had come into Tralee Garda Station on the 27th of February. The accused had declared that, quote-unquote, one of his staff had been killed, James Healy, and told the officer that at the time of James's death, he, Michael O'Brien, had been about 60 yards away in the field. O'Brien had gone on to tell the guard that two others had killed James at about half two or three o'clock on Saturday morning, but O'Brien didn't know these other men. The defendant had also complained at the time that he had been threatened and so Detective Sergeant Nolan had then invited the defendant to return to the station at noon that day to make a statement, but he hadn't turned up. Another Garda witness, Garda Martin Tierney, then told the court that O'Brien had asked if the body in the field was James Healy and if an iron bar had been found up there too, as, quote, all the young lads are carrying them, end quote. The following day, a cousin of the defendant, Amanda O'Brien, gave evidence that she had met another youth named Paddy Coffey the Friday after James's body had been found. Coffey had told her that he and the witness's cousin, Michael O'Brien, were getting the blame for James's death and that Coffey and another young man had been drinking with James the night he was killed. The young woman told the court that Mr. Coffey wouldn't say where they'd been or name the other guy who, Mr. Coffey had told her, had gone on the run. Ms. O'Brien said she was scared of Mr. Coffey and that he had been staring strangely at her and her friend. He then said that James, quote, wouldn't have got beat if he'd done what he was told. You don't know the full story, end quote. Amanda also testified that she herself had seen a man near to the scene of the murder put a package he had concealed on him into a bin he'd first removed some rubbish from it and then put it back into the bin on top of the package which he'd placed there. Amanda said she'd told her dad about what she'd seen and he had told the guardee. Mr Paddy Coffey also gave evidence himself on the 10th of December. He told the court that Michael O'Brien had told him that James Healy had been killed while the teenager was taking a shortcut home. Mr. Coffey agreed that he had said some of the things that Amanda O'Brien had testified to, but denied others. He told one of the defence barristers that he didn't know the full story either. Sergeant John Murray from Tralee Garda Station then gave evidence that he had seen Michael O'Brien a few weeks after the murder, in the early hours one night in Tralee, and had spoken with him. O'Brien said he hadn't slept in 24 hours and complained that everyone thought he had killed, quote, that young fella. O'Brien went on to say that he was ready for Gardy when they decided to question him and that he knew who had killed James and had named another man. The court also heard testimony from other local people who knew Michael O'Brien and who had spoken to him the day that James Healy was found dead in the patch of waste ground. John Tobin said he had seen the defendant the day of the discovery of James's body and testified that he had asked O'Brien if he knew the identity of the person who had died. Mr Tobin recalled for the court that O'Brien had replied he had no idea and added that for all he knew, the body could be that of his own brother. Eric Leahy also met Michael O'Brien that day and testified that the defendant had said James Healy was up in the field with his head smashed in. Mr. Leahy confirmed for the court that he hadn't asked how Mr. O'Brien had known that the body was that of James Healy and had just taken his word for it, underlining the fact that the identity of the body found in the field was not yet publicly known at that point. A Mr. Patrick Sullivan told the court that he had seen a length of pipe in a ditch near to the waste ground where James Healy's body was found the Tuesday before he went missing. Two weeks later, he had noted that the pipe was gone. Mr. Sullivan said that he had not touched it and was then shown the length of conduit thought to have been used in the attack. 
The witness confirmed that it was the same pipe that he had seen in the ditch. On Wednesday the 16th of December, a psychiatric doctor local to the Tralee area, Mary Clark, told the court that it was her assessment that Michael O'Brien was not suffering from a mental illness. She had first met the defendant in 1987 after she was asked to carry out an assessment on O'Brien by the probation services. Dr. Clark also described how, at the time, O'Brien had assaulted a man with a knife and then, while he was in prison for that attack, had slashed both his own wrists and neck. O'Brien had been sent for treatment to the Central Mental Hospital in Dundrum a few times, but he had fallen outside the guidelines for long-term admission there. Dr. Clark said Michael O'Brien was able to lead a gang in the town, organise crimes, arrange and collect his dull money, and buy and sell chainsaws. According to her interviews with the defendant, the buying and selling may also have included guns, too. She said O'Brien had no regard for the truth and diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder. After Dr. Clark was asked to admit him once more in the early 90s, a move she did not agree was appropriate, she told the court she had tried to have O'Brien admitted to Dundrum and had lied on the assessment for this, saying that O'Brien suffered from a mild mental illness. However, on the stand, Dr. Clark said this form was not accurate. O'Brien didn't have a mental illness, instead he had a personality disorder. The doctor explained that at the time O'Brien's family and local guardie were trying to get him placed somewhere to deal with his behaviour and get him off the streets and causing trouble. She told the court, quote, Looking at the case, I knew something was going to happen. I knew something was going to go wrong. I predicted that there would be a crime in the future. I was not able to carry all of this on my own. This man should have been put away, incarcerated. I'm not a forensic psychiatrist who is used to dealing with people who commit major crimes. I wanted Dr. Charles Smith of the Central Mental Hospital involved in the case. I sought his advice and got it, end quote. Dr. Clark went on to describe her interviews and assessments with O'Brien. It was her evidence that the defendant would lie when answering questions, quote-unquote, for the crack. He had refused to engage in a rehabilitation program and would not agree to cease using drink or drugs, which are known to exacerbate antisocial personalities. During her testimony, Dr. Clark outlined what she meant by this diagnosis. She said, quote, It is a disorder where an individual causes harm to himself and others, shows no remorse, does not learn from experience, wants their needs met there and now, and is unwilling by and large to postpone meeting their own needs. This man, O'Brien, was not an easy man to assess in view of the fact that he said he lies to doctors for the crack. I had to be careful and I had to keep a relatively open mind, end quote. The doctor also outlined for the court some of O'Brien's destructive behaviour that she had learned of. He'd broken windows in his parents' home and had said he was thinking about cutting their heads off because they'd taken against him. He no longer lived at his parents, instead staying with his grandmother nearby. In fact, O'Brien had once turned up at his parents' home with a chainsaw and had sawed down the front door of the house. She said O'Brien also had a history of violence against animals. Another senior clinical psychologist also gave evidence in the trial. Dr. Colm Dowling had examined Mr. O'Brien and agreed with Dr. Clark's assessment that although the defendant had a limited education, he was capable of abstract reasoning and had in fact done very well in a lot of the testing administered to him. Dr. Dowling also concluded that O'Brien had antisocial personality disorder with a low verbal IQ, and he told the court that those suffering with Similar disorders often reacted in a, quote, very exaggerated fashion, impulsively and violently, end quote, and could react that way to an innocuous remark. On the 17th of December, Detective Sergeant John Brennan took to the stand to give evidence regarding various comments and interactions made by O'Brien to Gardee in the wake of James Haley's death. Before giving any official statements, Michael O'Brien had passed notes to the detective sergeant which outlined how the accused had seen two men near the field where James had been found and had seen them attacking someone. O'Brien had drawn a map to explain the incident he said he'd witnessed and the map was shown to the court. 
Michael had told the officer that he reckoned it was James being beaten and eventually decided to leave because he would, quote, get the same death, end quote. In the next breath, he said, quote, I didn't think James Healy was dead, you see. That's why I said nothing, end quote. Detective Sergeant Brennan then told the court that in a statement on the 22nd of February, Michael O'Brien had told a significantly different story. O'Brien had told him that he had given James Healy, quote, a good few belts with the bar, end quote, after the defendant discovered that James was taking tablets. O'Brien had said that hash was fine, but tablets would, quote unquote, fuck you up, and he was trying to teach the younger lad a lesson. O'Brien said James had been associating with drug barons. He'd left James in the field and hadn't realised that he'd killed him at the time. On cross-examination, Mr. Blaise O'Carroll for the defence asked the Garda sergeant, who was the arresting officer, if it was not the case that he had interviewed O'Brien in such a way as to elicit a confession, to entrap him in a way, given he had initially written the note saying that he had only witnessed the attack. But Detective Sergeant Brennan denied this, saying O'Brien had made his statement without dictation. The trial was adjourned then for the Christmas break and again in January when one of the jurors' wives gave birth. When the court resumed on the 11th of January, Mr Justice Kinlan refused an application by that juror to be excused to help his wife with the newborn as they could not afford to lose a juror in the middle of flu season and risk the trial falling apart. So, on Tuesday the 12th of January, Detective Sergeant Brennan resumed the stand and his evidence regarding the interviews with Michael O'Brien before his arrest. He told the court that during the interview, the conduit piping had been shown to O'Brien by Gardee. At this, Detective Sergeant Brennan said that O'Brien had become visibly upset and his demeanour had completely changed. The witness recounted that O'Brien had said, quote, that's the bar I told you about, the one I hit James Healy with, end quote. Blaze O'Carroll, defending, put it to the guard that this was untrue and that his client might have seen a piping in the newspaper report shortly after the murder. The Kerryman and other newspapers had published graphic photos of the crime scene and James Healy's body in situ after his discovery, causing a public uproar. So it was possible that the defendant had seen some of this coverage. Mr. O'Carroll went on to suggest that the detective sergeant had made up the words in the statement about wanting to teach Healy a lesson. But Detective Sergeant Brennan said simply, that's not what happened. Further Garda witnesses were also heard that day. Garda Jim O'Donovan was the member in charge when O'Brien was arrested by Detective Sergeant Brennan and outlined the grounds for arrest to the court. O'Brien was the last person seen with Healy in the vicinity on the night of his death. According to Sergeant Brennan, O'Brien had told Darren O'Shea that he'd killed Healy. O'Brien's father, mother and sister had said that before James's body had been found, Michael O'Brien had said James's body was in the field with his head bashed in. And finally, O'Brien had told a cousin on the 24th of February, again before the body was found, that Healy had been thrown in a field. On the 13th of January, Wednesday, the court was shown an eight-page letter alleged to have been written by the defendant to the guardee while he was in prison. The letter outlined how the statement made to the guardee had been lies, that it had been made while the accused was in shock. It said, quote, I told the police lies. I have nothing to fear. I have killed nobody. I would have nothing to fear. I am the wrong man, end quote. Sergeant Massey O'Donnell from Dingle Garda Station then read a memo for the court, taken during an interview with O'Brien, where the accused was alleged to have said that he and James had planned to do or to rob a shop on Saturday night, but when the two had met up later, Healy was tipsy. O'Brien had then allegedly said that after Healy got cheeky with him, he'd lost control and hit him, but he didn't know James had died until he'd heard it on the news. Blaze O'Carroll asked Detective Sergeant O'Donnell outright if he and the other guardie were trying to frame his client for the murder, pointing out the fact that there was a whole other confession given on a different occasion, according to guardie. The Detective Sergeant replied, quote, Absolutely not. Then, on the 18th of January, Michael O'Brien took the stand in his own defence. 
O'Brien told the court that he had indeed gone to the Garda station in Tralee, but said that the officers had told him that two other named men were responsible for Healy's murder. O'Brien said on the stand that he wasn't in the area the night of James's death. He went on to allege that the guards had told him that it was these other men who had killed James and he was to be their star witness. He insisted that he'd only gone to the Garda station to clarify matters. O'Brien described being brought to the interview room in Tralee Garda station for questioning and said at the time that he had believed that the Gardaí were looking at other people in relation to the killing and that he was there to assist them. He acknowledged that he had signed a piece of paper but disputed earlier testimony that he had made a statement and told the court that the Gardaí had never read any such statement over to him. O'Brien said he hadn't looked at the piece of paper he'd been given to sign and later when a statement was posted out to him it was wrong and had quote wrong words and things in it end quote things that O'Brien insisted he hadn't said. The defendant said that neither of the statements that the Gardaí had presented to the court as being given by him were correct. He said he might have said that he was near where the murder had occurred on the night, but that this still wasn't true. It was what Gardaí had wanted him to say. O'Brien went on to allege that while he was in the Garda station, Detective Sergeant John Brennan had held up the piping to his face, an accusation that the Garda denied. O'Brien went on to explain, quote, Five weeks after the crime, the guards were under intense pressure. They couldn't get the people who'd done it, so they had to put all the blame on me. The guards are misleading the court, end quote. The defendant also asserted that the people who had put him near to the place where James's body had been found were mistaken. O'Brien told the court that when he learned that the boy found up in the field had been James Healy, he'd gotten an awful shock and had drawn up a list of ten people he thought were good suspects in the case. O'Brien felt that he needed to be careful at that time because he thought he could be next. It was his evidence that he had last seen James the Monday before he'd gone missing. O'Brien said he'd been sick on the 21st and had gone into town around lunchtime. O'Brien was in the town with various people and cycling around before returning to his grandmother's house at about ten past three. O'Brien told the court that the following morning he had gotten up at half ten. He'd spoken with his dad and then gone and played football. Afterwards, he went home for food and a wash. That evening, he and another man had called for James Healy, but Healy wasn't home. They were all to go drinking, but it began raining, so he came home at around 11. Michael O'Brien had therefore not been out or anywhere near the field where James Healy was found at his presumed time of death that night. The following Tuesday, O'Brien said that his father had told him that a man had been found dead and O'Brien had gone up to see what was going on. He told the court he'd thought it might have been one of his brothers. He talked to Garda Tierney while there, speculating about the possibility of a suicide or that maybe the body was James because the witness had heard that James had been in a fight and was in the hospital. O'Brien said it was then he realised that he hadn't seen James in a few days. According to the defendant on the stand, various people had asked him who he thought the body was and he said he didn't know. He said he felt like he was going to have a heart attack when he saw James's picture in the newspaper. O'Brien told the court frankly that he was convinced that Gardy and three other named individuals were conspiring to frame him for the murder. When cross-examination of the defendant began, he was asked why he had said James Healy had been murdered sometime between 2.30 and 3am on Saturday morning. O'Brien responded that he was doing his own detective work. When asked about the evidence given by Darren O'Shea, O'Brien said that the other man had been lying through his teeth, despite the fact that O'Shea had said during his own testimony, quote, I don't like the guards and the guards don't like me. Nevertheless, O'Brien insisted that O'Shea had been lying to ingratiate himself with the local police. Senior counsel for the stage then put it to O'Brien that he had written a letter to the Gardaí in an attempt to throw them off his trail, but went on to say that the defendant couldn't help but boast about what he had done and therefore implicated himself in James Healy's murder. Again, this was denied by Michael O'Brien. On the stand, the defendant had some comments in particular for Mr. Edwards, who was prosecuting and conducting the cross-examination. O'Brien said that the two of them had, quote, 
crossed swords before, end quote, and that Mr. Edwards had, quote, come out second best on that occasion, and you'll come out second best on this occasion, end quote. Edwards took the opportunity to point out that Mr. O'Brien was no stranger to legal proceedings and had been in and out of court and indeed in prison before. He had a good familiarity with police procedure, court procedure and various aspects of the law. O'Brien was cocky on the stand under cross and said he had, quote, magnificent confidence in this case, end quote, and that he would be, quote, king of the country when it was over and he was free. On Thursday the 21st, the final witness in the case, Karen Morrison, began her evidence. She initially told the court that she had seen the deceased, James Healy, on Saturday night, the day after the state's case said he had died, and she swore that she knew this for certain because she had specifically taken that day off work. But during questioning by Mr. Edwards, he pointed out that Miss Morrison hadn't actually begun working her job until late March. She was also asked if a relative of the accused had shown her her statement that she had made while near the court before giving evidence on Thursday. The judge, Mr. Justice Kinlan, had to warn her of the implications of not being truthful on the stand and that perjury was a criminal offence. After that, Ms. Morrison said she must have made a mistake. And with that, the defence case closed. Mr. John Edwards gave his closing statement on behalf of the Director of Public Prosecutions on Monday the 25th of January. He said that the evidence had shown Michael O'Brien had beaten James Healy to death on Friday the 22nd of February 1997. The force of the blows had been such that Mr. Healy's head had created a depression in the earth below it. It was the state's case that after the attack Mr. O'Brien had got on a bike and cycled quickly into town in order to attempt to establish an alibi. O'Brien was a, quote, vicious and dangerous person whose first instinct was self-preservation, end quote. But before James Healy's body was even found, he had told people where James was lying dead and how he had died. The only person who could have known that at the time, argued Mr. Edwards, was the killer. In his closing speech, on the 41st day of the trial proceedings, Mr. Blaise O'Carroll compared the case to the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four, saying that his client had been framed and was being used as a scapegoat. The state couldn't even pin down an exact time of death. The narrative said James Healy was dead on Friday night, but the indictment gave a span of days from Friday to Tuesday, which he said was a huge fault in the case. The senior counsel argued, quote, the guards entered into a cold, calculating conspiracy to gather evidence to build a case to destroy an innocent human being, end quote. The defence lawyer said that the characterization of O'Brien as vicious and dangerous was wrong and propaganda to instill fear. Mr. O'Carroll continued that just because O'Brien had a disorder, that didn't make him guilty. In fact, Mr. O'Carroll said, his client had nearly always protested his innocence. Finally, O'Carroll said, quote, Michael O'Brien is completely innocent of killing his friend and deputy, James Healy. There is no other explanation as to why he is so confident that a jury of his peers, having heard all the evidence, should have any difficulty in seeing that he is innocent. The only reason he can be so confident is because Michael O'Brien did not kill James Healy, end quote. After instructions delivered by Mr. Justice Kinlan, the jury began their deliberations at 10 minutes to 3 on Thursday the 28th and were sent to a hotel around 6pm that night. The following morning, just after court resumed, the jury returned with their verdict. It had taken the eight women and four men around three hours total to find Michael O'Brien guilty of the murder of James Healy. When the verdict was read, O'Brien yelled out, quote, This is a miscarriage of justice, and his sister was heard to yell through tears, He's innocent. With the verdict delivered, Mr. Justice Kinlan moved on to his sentencing remarks. He said that O'Brien had been the leader of a group of younger boys in the area who had engaged in criminal behaviour. The judge noted that O'Brien had spent a considerable portion of his life in prison, and the best attempts of his family his GP and the guardee to have him assessed psychiatrically had failed. 
Mr. Justice Kinlan noted that he was not in a position to do anything but sentence Michael O'Brien to life imprisonment and said if it was possible, it would have been his preference to send O'Brien to a psychiatric unit. Instead, Justice Kinlan gave a strong recommendation that O'Brien be sent to Dundrum and that careful consideration would be given before his release. On July 16, 2001, O'Brien was before the appeal court. His lawyers said that the jury had twice seen him in handcuffs and that this had interfered with his presumption of innocence with them. However, the issue had been addressed by the trial judge at the time. The appeal against his conviction for the murder of James Healy was dismissed. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Katie Linehan, Meredith Daly, Frank Kelly, Sarah MacDonald, Michelle Barry, Emma Louise, Martina Ganaki, Sinead Burke, and Nicola Long, and to Vivia Bow and Becca Last who have upped their pledges. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It is hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going and, along with those warm fuzzies of helping out, you get ad-free, bonus episodes, and nifty merch. There's also now an option to sign up for an annual membership, which comes with a 15% discount too. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. And don't forget to check out our new shop at Tee Public, where you can get all sorts of lovely Mens Rea merch. Thank you so much, guys. The response to this shop has been wonderful. It's great to see that everybody is buying these t-shirts. Please do post your pictures online and tag me. I want to see you out there in that Mens Rea merch. There are also some new designs. And if you want to snag a shirt for yourself, go check out bit.ly forward slash Mens Rea merch. Or you can follow the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, BetterHelp, Murder Map, published by Thames and Hudson, and June's Journey. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so head to the show notes and check them out. It couldn't be easier. Our theme music is Quinn's Song, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. After doctor, after doctor, after doctor, little, little, little.